Should I hire a CTO or get a technical co-founder? How can I hire a great engineer? And why are estimations such a mess? Today, we speak to Aman Agarwal, the author of The Tech Fluent CEO, who has exceptional talent to explain tech to non-tech people. We'll cover the most frequent questions we hear from non-technical founders on a regular basis. Welcome back to the Product Stories Podcast, hosted by Victor Peralnik. This podcast helps founders like yourself to find leaner ways to build successful SaaS products. Aman, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Victor. Yeah, my pleasure. You are technical, right? You you are a developer? Yeah, I would consider myself so. I mean, I worked on self-driving cars and stuff, so... But then I, I also don't consider myself like one of those super, like, super developers who write assembly code and, you know... Um, read like these mathematical tables when they go to sleep and stuff like that. So I'm kind of like on the bridge, so to speak. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, still self-driving cars is is, is still very, very technical and interesting and fascinating. So what's your background then? Is it computer science? Yeah, uh, no, I actually studied electronics in college. And uh, then I actually switched over to business after I graduated because I wanted to experience more of like what sales is like, what marketing partnerships and all that stuff. And then I went back to engineering because I was like, you know, this tech stuff is actually quite fun. And that that's when I got into self-driving cars, machine learning, all that stuff. Then I uh, switched over, not switched, but I, I narrow focused myself into systems engineering which is basically a field of engineering which deals with large, complex projects. Like, So it's, it's used extens- extensively to companies like NASA, Lockheed Martin, the big defense contractors, you know, like where you have aerospace companies and all, and all that stuff. So that's what I've been into after this, ever since then. Yeah. Cool. And, and what, what are you doing today? I'm the founder of a digital private equity company, so to speak. So what we do is we act as digital transformation officers. We go into businesses and then we turn them around using technology. So we make them more efficient. And uh, the, the, only, the basic thing we do is, you know, usually when you hire somebody tech, super technical at the executive level, you don't know how to measure their impact on the organization, right? Especially if it's a if it's an industry like insurance or retail or something like that, right? You don't really know if they're. I mean, if it, if it's software, you know they're moving the needle because they're pushing out your product every day, right? But if it's a traditional industry, you don't really know what they're doing. So what we do is we tie our goals directly to revenue, even as engineers. That's a that's a short short version of it. <laughs> that's that's very interesting. But uh, the 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 reason why we're speaking really is because I saw. I saw your book that you posted somewhere. I thought this is super interesting. I was toying with something like that for a very long time, but never got around to doing it. And uh, you published a book that's called The Tech Fluent CEO. So obviously it's it's meant for founders who are not so tech savvy, but want to understand technology more. And I, I gave it a quick read and um, really wanted to, to get your take on a lot of things that that move our audience and I, I thought that'd be a great fit and so we'll, we'll talk about the book a bit later and, and where people can find it but we get a lot of questions uh, working with clients working with with uh, or, or going on the show uh, we get a lot of questions from non-technical or 
less technical founders regarding software development. Obviously, one of the biggest challenges if you want to launch a SaaS that's actually a tech product or anything else when you are not really technical. I assume it's the same way in every industry. If I went to construction, oh boy, that would be horrible and horrible experience for me most probably. And so I actually got to applaud a non-technical founder for the willingness to take the risk, jump in. I think it's 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 just really, really brave. So when someone starts their, their SaaS, they obviously, or their company or, or whatever it might be that's technical, they have to hire a developer. And is there something like, obviously we look at, at technical skills, right? Everybody wants to vet technical skills. So we might choose a recruiter or um, somebody else to help us actually just send us a candidate that that knows their hard skills, right? But is there also something like the wrong or right developer for my company, depending on industry stage or whatever it might be, that, that doesn't necessarily just relate to the to the hard skills? Like, can a good developer be a bad developer for me? Of course, absolutely. And I see it happen all the time. Now, according to company stage, yes. I mean, when you're at the later stage, you don't really, I mean, care as much as a founder about those non-technical sides of each developer on the team because you're not, you're kind of like uh, separated from them a little bit, right? Through your technical co-founder or whoever is managing the engineers for you. But really the, the thing that really happens, right, is the interpersonal relationship between you and the expert, which is what I call them. Like whether you go into construction, it's your construction expert. If you go into healthcare, whatever, you always have, it's the ultimate uh, equation is you are as a non-expert have to manage an expert, right? And that opens a kind of forms like, well, number one, you have to know they're telling you the truth, right? Number one, you have to know that they're explaining things to you you have to know that they're doing the right things, even if you can't see if they're right or wrong. They have a certain degree of independence and authority in the company, which you, even as a CEO, will not enjoy. And they have that a certain authority over you as well, right? As much as you have some authority over them. Um, so it's a very, it's a very unique relationship, right? Between it's like between you and your doctor, right? Like, well, I hope my doctor's he knows what he's doing, or she she knows what she's doing, and. I hope she's telling me the truth, right? And so the one thing that I typically advise people to look for, whether they are recruiting an engineer or any expert, whether, even if it's your CFO, right? Or whoever is an expert at something that you're not at, is the heart of a teacher. And the heart of a teacher means that they are just naturally not only good at teaching, but they are willing to teach. They have the patience to explain things and they get excited about explaining things to you as a non-technical person. And the way that translates into day-to-day is that you're never, going to have, you're never going to have to worry about them talking down to you or keeping things obfuscated from you about what's going on in the company, what's going on in, the, in their work. They'll tell you as it is and explain to you why things are that way. And they'll make you better at managing them over time. So they'll make you more technical over time, even if you don't want it. <laughs> like, you know, it's just in their blood. Like they, they love teaching. That's, I think, the biggest differentiating factor between hiring an expert and treating them as a mercenary versus hiring an expert who truly becomes a member of your team. He, he, they become an advisor, a consultant to you. And 
especially at the early stage, you do want an expert because the way software projects go, it's the difference between getting something done late or getting something done never, right? There's usually not getting something done on time in the early stage of company, of a software company. Right? That just rarely ever happened. You have a plan and then it gets delayed uh, for whatever reasons. Uh, as, and we're going to talk about estimations in a, you know, in a little while. But having, a, having somebody with the heart of a teacher can keep you in the loop when things go south. Maybe that's a wrong, long answer, but yeah. But this is a great answer. I think this is spot on and it's really valuable to work with someone like that. Yeah, you already mentioned that, you know, you mentioned estimations. I think there are a couple of, of points of conflict that can rise between the founder who doesn't feel comfortable in verifying any information on their own, any technical information, and the developer, right? Estimations are one of them, but the other one might also be the generally the, the complexity of things, right? How complex is something? Uh, I think this is super simple. My developer thinks it's really complicated, which ties together with estimations. But the estimations point I, I, I want I wanted to touch on is really about why we estimate something. And then it just takes twice as long. And uh, it all, all ties in together a bit, but it, these are really two, two problems. So let's dive into that. Firstly, about complexity. I, I hear it a lot. Like, I want to just build... I just want to build a page with a form and a button, right? Why is this so complicated? Well, you consider, right? When I say consider always is Google is a page with one input field and one button. And it, it kind of has thousands of engineers working on it for a very long time. Obviously, they do other products as well. But, you know, that that that's just some food for thought. And But the question really is, why is that? Why can a form field with a, with one button employ hundreds if not thousands of engineers full-time it's a very beautiful question and i think it's just goes back to how much of what we see in the world happens behind closed doors right it's kind of the same thing as going and sitting down in a restaurant and a waiter comes out and they take an order and then a few minutes later they come out with really delicious food food and then uh, you're like wow how did where did that come from right like wow i just give you an instruction and then you bring me food, you know, like, it's amazing. Like, how, where did this, how, is this magic? Like, what, what happened here, right? And what you know, of course, as, as a general person going to a restaurant is like, well, you know what, we actually have a kitchen back in there and there's like a bunch of cooks who are doing this for a living every day and, you know, they have a lot of stuff going on and the kitchen is almost as big as the seating area itself, right? In some case, in some cases and, um, and that's the part that people don't see, which, you know, they don't have to see. And it's similar with software, right? What looks to you as a button that takes, as a form with a button that takes an, an input and gives you a result is actually the result of extremely complex soft machinery, you could say almost, right? Extremely complex algorithms running in the background, which have to be written, which have to crunch data. And that is where you know the beauty uh, really of software really lies you have these massive entities like databases which you know you have these program which crawl the web billions of web pages every day and all that happens you know when you have thousands of engineers writing thousands and millions and billions of billions of lines of code 
I really like the the restaurant analogy, and we haven't even gone into marinating and smoking, procuring food like weeks before, right? Yeah, and it's, yeah absolutely. It's, it's super similar. And I guess what, what a lot of people also don't see is that within software, most of the work, even though the front end might be exactly the same, depends on scalability, right? How scalable do I make the system? Can be easy to do it scrappy, can be super hard to do it very scalable, right? And also secure, compliant. There's there's just so many layers to add on to your software and the UI doesn't even change a bit, right? Absolutely. Uh, I think it's just like any business, right? You, you go and buy a box of chocolates, you know, and the chocolates could be a Hershey's, I don't know, $5 bar, whatever, or it could be from this, uh, you know, little known factory in Switzerland that makes chocolates with, I don't know what, like for been making that that way for a hundred years and they do things totally differently. And the wrapper might look exactly the same to you uh, in a way, but as soon as you put it in your mouth, you know the difference. A hundred percent. Let's move on to estimations now. So we've now uh, discussed that, hey, I might think this is super simple. My developer might get back to me and say, okay, this is going to take, you know, four to six months. Now, let's say we agree in four to six months and eight months later, we're sitting there and <laughs> it's still not done. Uh, this is really obviously one of the things that we get a lot. We hear that a lot from people who come to us. And um, why is that, objectively speaking? Why can't that happen? And let's just assume that this is actually a fair developer, right? We're not speaking to, we haven't hired a junior to design a large scalable system. We, we've actually made a proper choice of, of developer, at least when it comes to their hard skills. But so why can that be still late? It's a very complex question, right, Victor? And in fact, in fact, I'm going to give you my answer. And then I would actually want some of your thoughts on this too, right? Because, you know, as you work with a lot of uh, software developers and stuff. So that we, so that the audience gets like kind of both perspectives in a way, right? I think it's really like there's many ways you can go about building something new. So that's the first point. Like if I were to tell you, like, hey, Victor, I want you to build a castle, a sand castle on the beach, and it has to be the most beautiful sand castle ever. And I want the sand castle to have this little system which has some little other smaller castles with it, right? And so you put, you bring up your bucket and you get some cups and stuff and you go and you you rock it on the beach right you're like yeah i can do this within one day you know promise like you know boom it's gonna get done and yet you go and as promised like within a day or maybe two days max right the sand castle is there like and it's a beautiful sand castle with everything with like roller coasters all around it and everything right now if you stretch that to a large actual castle right now you're getting into some interesting territory where you're like whoa okay what uh, how does this whole piece work together? Now you're not doing with, now you're not just dealing with sand and buckets. Now you're dealing with, okay, there's going to be a foundation. There's going to be a blueprint. There's going to be a, you know, there's going to be all these different materials. There's going to be plumbing. There's going to be, you know, electrical wiring, whatever. There's going to be, you know, we've got to think about the architecture. We've got to think about climate. We've got to think about all these other different aspects to it. We've got to think about disaster management. You know, we got to have all these other factors that compounded like spinning plates and the developer has to spin all those plates together, right? And keep them all spinning because not a single plate can break. So it takes time to get plates spinning. And sometimes if you spin one plate, the difference is the other plates 
stop spinning because of it. And you have to find a way to make those two plates spin at the same time, right? Which otherwise wouldn't spin. And as complexity increases, you start realizing how much you don't know and how much your and how much of the initial assumptions or knowledge on, based on which you made your initial estimations were actually wrong. So you are gathering new information throughout the process, right? Throughout the process of building, you're gathering new information about the, about the building itself. And what I would say, though, is that there are ways, and as a systems engineer, you know, companies like NASA, they have tried to solve this problem of estimations for like half a, half a century. And there are ways to go about doing things in a certain way, which might feel like a waste of time in the beginning, but which greatly reduce the, reduce the deviation in the final duration of the project by like 15, 20%. Like, I mean, make sure it's within 15 to 20%. Right. But even there, you know, working with those engineers who are not even software engineers, they're like hardcore. I mean, they're the ones I would consider hardcore engineers. Right. And even they say, like, the most you can get typically is if you spend 15 percent of the project duration in the beginning on planning and scoping things out and doing things by the book, making sure that everything's all the different risk factors are taken care of, you can get to a 90 percent assurance that your time and budget will be within 20%, right? So a 90% assurance that you'll be within 20% of your initial estimation. I mean, I think industry-wide, that's kind of the the holy grail to reach for. Like I've never, I mean, of course you have like, it's a distribution of data, right? Sometimes you'll have projects that actually end like within on a certain day that they were planned. But typically I think that's the, as an engineering community, I think that's where we've arrived so far in terms of how accurate we are with, est- with estimations. Does that, does that answer your question? And I would like your thoughts on this as well. Yeah, totally. And I think this is spot on. Also, the sandcastle analogy is beautiful, like but prototype versus actually scalable software. And because the, the two differences really what may cause delays, in, in, in my opinion, are because you got to gotta gotta look at two different factors, right? Because I think what you are also saying is like, if we actually assuming that we actually know what we want to build, right? At least what the end result is supposed to be. But a lot of times, and we see that in startups, it's like even that changes, right? We even learn that our scope needs to slightly change or do something different, or we thought it's supposed to do something, but it, it, it it's not. And we only then clarify. So we have various uncertainties and risks, actually. One is the scope risk. But the second one, as you discussed, is a tech risk, right? I, I like your analogy here, and let's let's take it this way, right? Um, we're somehow building the highest building in the neighborhood, right? And um, just uh, in the middle of the project, we realize the water pressure that we're getting isn't isn't big enough to you know to to supply the highest floor, right? This is I think this is a realistic problem that's happening in tech, something along those lines. And now we need to put in more effort change our system make sure we add in a pump that 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 increases pressure in the in the entire water system and nobody's planned for that and i things like that i don't know i i'm again i'm not in construction so i'm i might be talking complete bs right now but generally these these kinds of problems occur and um, if you add in both uncertainties right that the, the the scope uncertainty and the technical uncertainty which, you know, the, the water thing, it might be an API that we're working with that just doesn't 
do what we thought it would or not to the extent or not at that scale or it's going to rate limit us after we use it too much or I don't know it could be it could be a lot of things put those two together and you're really running risky territory and it is not really anybody's fault yeah it's it's a process of i mean i think all engineering real engineering not like just following a tutorial all real engineering is a essentially at the heart a creative endeavor right it's a creative process like art and i mean it's not it's not exactly like art but it's it's pretty much artistic in a way that how you solve the problem you have to figure out a plan your own plan and then art is by default an adventure right you have to figure things out and you have to see things as you go along and there's also another factor that we i think one more risk factor that came into my mind if you're a startup and you're going to have to manage other engineers and hire other engineers to build that big tech thing that's another risk, like uncertain tech how many pe- do you have the resources you need do you have the talent on the team that you need to get that built have those people done it before or are they figuring it out as well right with you also one more thing like when you typically ask an engineer like hey this is my idea how long will it take to build how quickly do you do, do you think they typically come back to you with a, an estimation like a day half an hour an hour something like that like you know it's like usually it's like in this is something that i think the silicon valley software culture is kind of like me maybe being a little old school because i'm con- i've been uh, taught by the wrong the you know people who are a little too hardcore but for me these are like <laughs> back of the envelope calculations right like what people come up with in and in what they call estimations it's kind of like like a brain fart like honestly that's that's what i would call them because that's what they are they're not actually estimations usually they'll just give you oh yeah i i worked at this company in the past and something that's 15% similar to what you're doing took this much time so i'll give it like another 15 minutes or 20 minutes of 20 20% of a safe buffer and then i'll that's my estimation for your for this project right it's really back of it's not even back of the envelope like it to call it would a calculation would be an insult to calculations right um <laughs> and so <laughs> and that that's my opinion i think if you're if you're going to have ask for an estimation ask for a blueprint and then ask for the estimation right don't just ask people hey how long how long will it take and how much is going to cost me ask people to say hey can you give me a blueprint for how this could work and then let's talk about what would it take to and, and then educate me educate me like with the heart of a teacher how long this would take how much money it would cost and why like educate me about that that's that's the way you go about asking for an estimation you don't say here's my idea like woo in 5 minutes come up with um like how many months it's going to take me hiring a perfect team isn't a piece of cake is it to find a good candidate you need to post a job on multiple job boards review like 100 CVs conduct at least a dozen initial interviews to make sure there's at least a single specialist you would like to hire but with superb hire by trustshore you can forget about all of the hiring headache find meet and hire skilled and dedicated assistants ready to take over marketing sales administrative customer support data entry or other tasks contribute to your business growth and help you reach your goals Superb Hire takes care of the entire recruitment process. You just have to show up for the final interview. Visit superbhire.com and book a free no-commitment call to learn more. It's superbhire.com. I think the dilemma here is it, it you're right about uh, the startup culture here is that, you know, with agile, what we want to do is move fast, right? But one of the principles of agile, especially scrum is, right, that and I think people need to 
people forgot about that. They need to really think about that again, is that by making things agile, our assumption is that we don't care as much about finishing on time anymore, right? I mean, we do want to finish in a certain time frame, but we don't have to get all of the scope done, right? That's one of the main assumptions. We work quicker, more on demand. Um, we change scope more often, but this is exactly what we don't do in this case. We don't spend, as we used to in Waterfall decades ago, right? We, we don't spend 15 or 20%, as you said before also, on creating that blueprint because A, we want it to be able to change, and B, we want to start quicker, right? Because during that time, we would have already been able to push out the first prototype. But that's kind of the flip side of it. We, we have worse data to begin with. And that's, I think, something people forget about quite a lot. And the second dilemma is we also see that creating this blueprint takes a lot of time and effort. It's expensive. And oftentimes people are not willing to invest that kind of money to then just figure out, okay, how long will that take me? But if you really want to know the answer, this is exactly what you need to do. Um, De-risking things takes a lot of time, right? It takes uh, investigating the API, right, that we've we've discussed before. It takes uh, investigating for certain things, maybe building small proofs of concept for various risky functionality. And that's obviously all time that needs to be invested, time that needs to be paid. But then you really get a way more solid view on things. What I always recommend people to do, especially with estimations, is to really make sure they're they're decomposed, right? You have a decomposition of things and a lot of different factors. But then to ask people to not estimate a certain time, but to estimate a time range, like a min and max. And if you look then at the span, how big it is, you can sort of understand how certain the developer is that they're going to make it on time, right? Between five and six hours is a totally different certainty than three to 10, right? Like that's over 3x my uh, my minimum. And then you just go back to these. You know, you're non-technical. It's totally fine. You don't need to know why, but you see that there is a problem in there. And now you can ask the developer, is it because you're not sure what you're building? Is my description not good enough? Are you not sure that 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 this is really what we need to build? Or is it a technical problem? If it's a technical problem, why? You know, as you say, teacher, teach me. What's the what's the problem behind this? Can we solve it? Can we mitigate it? Is this thing even important? Right. A lot of times, what I see is is people going down a rabbit hole and a certain task that, in the end, if we would have thought about that, isn't even that difficult. Like, isn't that important? We we could have just skipped that one. And so that, I think, is also a very valuable approach here. Yeah, and, uh, you know, what you said about Agile is so true. I mean, building software or building a company the Agile way or the lead startup way, whatever that call, that's called, you are trying to mitigate three types of risk at the same time, right? And the number one risk in that, in that world is the risk of building something that nobody wants in the first place, right? That's number one. Number two it is building something that does not work as it's supposed to. And then number three is building, you know, something that doesn't get finished on time or, you know, like you're, you run out of money, basically. You run out of resources before you get it done. So 
managing all those three different kinds of risk is what makes the estimation game so difficult and why you you know have all these like plethora of like this exploding complexity as you go along that journey yeah 100 percent. now let's look into well mitigating these problems let's say i i really want to get some help i'm not technical but i want to get some help within my company uh, there's a few ways right i could try to get a co-founder a technical co-founder could hire someone make them my so-called cto which direction should i go like when is it a good idea to find a technical co-founder or maybe to put it the other way what what's a sign that I'm trying to find a technical co-founder, but I I really uh, the the people that I'm finding right are not suitable. Maybe is there something like it's better not to get one than than these people that I'm actually talking to? Is there something like that? Could that actually make it worse? Good question. Yeah, that is that is honestly a very hard and subjective question to answer. But I do have some frameworks that I think about when I think about that. Right. The first one is, are you looking for an employee or a business partner? That's the most basic question. And I, I personally don't like business partners. I like, I like having, uh, you know, whatever. That's my personal preference, you know. Like, uh, and, and a lot of entrepreneurs will tell you the same thing. Like, yeah, they don't do business partner. They might do, they'll do something else before they need a business partner or something like that. And they'll give people equity, but they won't be like, yeah, this is my business partner, 50-50 or something like that. Right? So that's one. The, the other thing is, you know, it's interesting how you phrase that question. And I think a lot of people phrase it the same way, which is like, oh, I don't know, do I need a technical, technical co-founder or do I need somebody and make them my CTO, right? And for, for anybody who has had a question with that kind of phrasing in their mind, I would say, if you don't know what a CTO is, you don't need a CTO. Like that's literally the first thing. If you don't know what the CTO does, like what that role in, even means, what they do, you don't need them. And so what you really need is, what you're really asking for in general, you need a developer who will work for equity. Right now, that's, uh, let's, be, let's face it, that's the reality, right? That's what you want. That's what you're asking for. And that is, you know, depending on the job market, that can be hard to find, you know? What I would say is, again, you have to first, you're, you have three risk factor, right? Are you building something nobody wants? Are you building something that's going to be bad? Or are you building something that's going to be on time? You want for anybody to join you on that project, you have to show them that how you're going to, I mean, you have to work with them to mitigate those three risk factors. And most developers don't want you to have the first risk factor. If you're a business founder, non-technical founder, your literal job, the first, the first order of you know, priorities is to make sure that you're building something people want. And so if you can get there by using some some of these no code tools or if you can you can get there by hiring you know like offshore developers somewhere which i don't i mean i'm not i'm not a huge fan but yeah you, sometimes you have to do it if you have the money you, you should do it probably or if you can find just a way to raise money so you can pay people like based on the idea if you can go and raise money if you can, if you can go and get some Win some startup pitch competitions for heaven's sake. Like, you know, go get like get a few five thousand, ten thousand checks in your in your bank account from pitch competitions. There's anything anything you can do, right? To pay a legit developer who has the heart of a teacher to start building things for things for you, or at least like maybe take a reduced rate because they believe in you and they, you know, they're willing to take some equity, uh, look around your network. So I I guess it, it's a complex question, right? 
Like, how do you find a technical co-founder and do you need a technical co-founder? What you really need is somebody with the heart of a teacher and to get some momentum, whether it's come from them or whether they help you hire or manage a team of remote developers somewhere or something like that. Yeah. I like that answer. And uh, it makes a lot of sense, really, because um, there's a lot of people are confused about the titles, right? Co-founder, CTO, whatever, whatnot. If you're early stage, that's right. You need a developer. And now the question is, how do you pay them, right? Is it equity or is it money? Is it both? And as you said, it, it's hard to, unless I see that most of the time, it's either when you have a friend that you convince this way, right, to work for equity, that might happen, or someone you've actually had the same idea with, right? I don't know, you work at the same company and you 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 over lunch, you come up with this crazy thing and then you leave the company uh, together and start something totally new. This is usually when people find technical co-founders because uh, you know I was the marketing and sales guy, you were the developer and this is our idea, boom, let's go. But other than that, mostly these opportunities open up for serial founders right? Somebody with track record, or as you said, with someone who actually can prove their business case. So I think this is really, this should, if you're someone that doesn't have a track record, that doesn't have a friend, then most probably trying to further validate the business case with any means possible is, is really the way forward to find someone to then join you for equity. I think that is that is possible, really. Or in the meantime, you might find that actually things are taking off and you can now suddenly just pay someone. But not necessarily to be a CTO. It's probably to be developer, a lead yeah, senior, developer. Senior developer, and, lead developer, something like that. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Because what I think is also important to mention is that this title inflation that is going on, right? You're, you're, <laughs> you're blocking your way um, you might realize that two years down the road, you need to hire someone above the person that that's currently your CTO. Now, how do you, how do you want to do that, right? Even if it might, if even if it is your co-founder, could be right. Worst thing, you give someone equity, he's your CTO, but now you need to hire someone above them because you need someone more more skilled, which is a tough position to be in. Essentially, to degrade someone that's actually your co-founder, it's it's a hard thing to do. Whereas the other way around, you might both agree that, hey, I'm a great developer. I want to keep developing. I understand we need a, a manager, a, a, a development manager above me. Cool. No problem, right? Yeah, absolutely. 100%. Great. So this is, this, is really, this is really good. This is really exciting. So we've gone through the problems that might exist, why they arise, if it makes sense to just get that technical better half in into my my company so to speak i just want to touch on another point which is a very common scenario that we see is that someone works with a developer for a certain amount of time let's say it's even the mvp let's say we all understand this is probably sort of scrappy code right we've done it very quickly we we just wanted to launch Fair enough. We all know about it. We get to a certain stage where we can afford to work with a better developer. So we let that developer rewrite the entire code base. And a um, couple of years later, maybe even just two or something like that, we hire the next developer because the first one, I don't know, uh, left for another job or 
or just whatever, it doesn't matter. And that developer now also says, I find that code awful. I want to rewrite it, or I maybe even won't work on it. What, why does that happen? And how can we mitigate against that, even though we thought we, we now did something much better? In my career, I haven't seen that happen all the time. It's not like all the time. Everybody, every time somebody sh- shows up, they want to rewrite the code. So it, it is, I mean, so let's look at it from the perspective that it is an unusual occurrence, right? So that, that let's just preface by saying that, you know, it doesn't always happen all the time. And it's not like for any non-technical people listening to this, it's not like every developer you'll meet will want to rewrite the other person's code, right? So let's just uh, get that out of the way first. Because <laughs> uh, that would be a weird software engineer in like a weird industry to work in right? if everybody was just rewriting stuff. But I think that's where, again, um, you need them to explain to you like, hey, okay, so why did you have feel like redoing this thing from scratch was the only way forward? Can you explain to me? Just teach me, like, what's, what's going on? Like, you know, how much time will it take to build on top of it or fix it? Or what, what challenges do you see that makes you want to take this rash, this big decision of redoing something from scratch. It's like destroying a building instead of, you know, propping it back up again or doing a renovation or something like that, right? And, you know, okay, okay. so sometimes the, the most common case where this would happen, and, I, and, I'll, I'll, and I'll also say that I have seen people rewrite code which was written once, but I've never seen people want to rewrite code that's already been rewritten twice, right? So, like... That is something that I would say, like, I haven't seen yet. Maybe you have, but I personally haven't seen that. Maybe I've been working with, maybe I haven't seen, I mean, I, mean, I wouldn't be surprised. Like, yeah, there's some, there's probably somebody out there who hired one dunce after another. And then, you know, sometimes a non-dunce comes along and say like, oh, you've been hiring dunces all your life, right? You know, it might happen. But let's assume that that happens. It's usually, from a technical standpoint, it's usually because, you know, probably the code isn't split up the right way into the, into functional blocks. So usually it's like putting together an outfit, like, you know, to use a very simple analogy, if you're putting together an outfit, you have shoes, you have socks, you have trousers, you have a shirt, you have something on your head or something, whatever, right? Unless you're wearing a full-on onesie from top to bottom, if you want to change clothes, you you know, if something's wrong with a certain part of the garment, you flip, you change that garment, you change your shirt, right? And then maybe you're like, oh, the color doesn't match. And then you change your trousers, right? Very rarely does it happen that you have to change everything because you, because of one, because of, because your watch wasn't right. Like, I mean, usually that doesn't happen, right? You, you, some, you get, you, you have a stained shirt, you change your shirt, right? You don't change the entire outfit. You don't change everything from your glasses to your socks because your shirt was stained, so if something is really bad, like if something is really like, whoa, this code is a onesie, you can't split things up. It's like you have to throw the whole onesie out and you have to replace it with individual garments that you put on, right? Uh, that's usually the most common reason I would say why something have somebody has to... And okay, I will say that I've seen people who do scientific, like academic people, if, I, if you see, if you look at their code, it's like, it's a mess, right? It's not like actual production code. Like if you talk to a phd and i was i was in graduate school so i i was sitting with this guy who was doing like a phd in computer science and he was an academic all his life and he was doing like a phd in some biology something like that and i looked at his code and it has no functions it just has one long one function with like endless lines of code and loops and whatnot and i'm like okay well dude 
if I want to change this, I'm probably going to split this up and rewrite this whole thing like myself, right? That's usually, that's, I would say, the most likely reason. A reason or, or it could be that you have a huge security vulnerability in the code, which literally costs you millions of dollars. Like, it's like a building that doesn't follow disaster management guidelines or something like that, right? Or some evacuation guidelines. And then you have to tear down the building because you're like, no, no, no. Like, basically, rip thing, they rip this whole thing down. It's a, it's a safety hazard. And put it back together with new standards, right? Those are the two ca cases where I've seen this happen. Uh, but that's been my experience. I don't know. what Victor, what do, you, what do you think of that? I think your close analogy is spot on. I think this is, this is uh, most likely. So, obviously, first reason could be just a bad developer junior developer there's no structure like you said code like a scientist it's actually a phrase being okay. thrown out around there um, <laughs> i love that <laughs> and, yeah and so um i think that's case number one case number two is really this is uh you know the onesie that you mentioned where people speak about the monolith right that's yeah. in code that's the monolith and uh, it's just insanely hard to to work with it Probably the previous developer was just very used, very accustomed to it. You know your way around it. You don't need any documentation. What I oftentimes explain or say is that you know, taking over existing code is like being a city planner, like going into a city like New York, but there's no map. You're just like, you know something's wrong with, with this uh, intersection. There's a lot of traffic or something. And you now fix it without a map. Like you could make one light be green longer and make traffic flow faster, but that most likely is going to produce a, a traffic jam on the next intersection, right? You've just you just have no idea what's going on. And while the previous city planner knows that, you know, built the entire city probably, right? So knows he or she knows every single corner of this thing. You don't, and that might might just create that urge within you to rebuild this with your order in mind, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, that might also be another reason so that you understand it better. So obviously going deep into that code, really understanding what it does will solve that problem. But what might be the case is that it, it just really is a monolith and for extendability reasons, right? For, for, for the sake of writing good code. And um, I won't go into details i think of that now because we have other shows that explain why we write good code what it does how that affects uh uh the extendability of things and speed of development and whatnot but that's just probably your developer saying hey we'd be much faster if we had a better architecture oh and by the way i'd have way more fun doing that this is what 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 essentially is also i think uh, an important factor and let's face it we're in an industry where if uh if you have bad code that developers don't want to work on, they won't because they'll go to another job and what it might make no business sense for you whatsoever. That's just the situation of the job market. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Great. I think this was really, really insightful. It's really, really helpful. But I, I, I did look over your book that we that I mentioned in in the beginning, and it's it's really cool. I it I, I like it a lot. I think every founder as on technical should take a look at it. It um, that the chapter that I read was where you explained how software works, like 
how that actually works for 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 someone to understand how software what is software and what it does and it's it's really well written so um i encourage people to check it out where can people download that or get it or buy it yeah i'm happy to you know give you a link to the free uh, ebook and to your listeners and they can you know maybe you can share that in the episode notes and they can go and find it or you can go and buy it on amazon you know that works too for me <laughs> <laughs> awesome awesome well well then we'll definitely share both links and you have a wonderful weekend it's friday at probably afternoon for you right now so go enjoy thank you so much for coming on the show and looking forward to speaking again thank you thank you victor thank you for having me this show is brought to you by trust shoring your friendly concierge to find reliable and tested software developers from eastern europe we recruit full-time developers, match you to an experienced software house that's ideal for your requirements, or recommend a reliable freelancer for smaller projects. But most importantly, you benefit from our experience of developing software remotely for almost 10 years. We give you one-on-one -on -one guidance all the way so you're never lost. Stop the tedious hiring or vetting process and get matched to reliable talent. Sign up for a free consulting call with one of our experts today. Go to trustshoring.com.